0: It's not a matter of fault. Hello, Pamela Zero but the future here. Right Welcome to Duck Duck Goose, now. a podcast about the book Duck. This episode includes Chapter Four, followed by a bit of music and then some Q and A. Thanks for coming along on Duck's journey. Duck, Chapter Four. Duck, now. Duck stood quietly in the archway to the kitchen and sighs in Sai's and Ose's quarters. Last Ose was mad. This was the first time she had seen him angry. He was yelling all around Lucent Sai. Not at him, just around him, with big gestures and using words that Duck didn't always understand. She was scared, but not as scared as she had been at Burston. Nights were the hardest time at Burston. They tried taking shifts to sleep, but every few weeks the growlers would knock them out with some sort of sickly smelling gas. And then they'd wake up who knows where in whatever experiment was being done that day. When it got colder, it meant night was coming and Mama too would gather everyone around and take out her cards. She'd lay them out one by one and they would make up stories about the different beings on the cards. After a while, the story stuck, and Duck could remember the stories they told about Last Ose. Duck had recognized him that day in the cafeteria because one of the cards had been about him. Lucent Sai was even in one of the smaller pictures on the back of Last Ose's card. When they made up stories about Last Ose, they had been about him being an explorer, traipsing around in jungles and fighting huge monsters. One of the pictures had shown Last Ose fighting what looked like an enormous spider-like thing, driving a spear into its head while he stood on its back. In the stories, he'd been brave and daring, leaping around, killing stuff. The real Last Ose was anything but adventurous. He thought a lot. He moved slowly. He spoke even more slowly, and his favorite pastime seemed to be meetings. Duck thought that the color of his robes had been blue in the picture and not the green that they were now but she couldn't remember what the border color at the hem was Duck wished she could see the card again now that she was learning standard she would be able to look up what the writing on the card was when they left burst and mama too had split up the cards between them all so they each had four she said they each could take their favorites to remember their time together just in case she said Auntie Fran had the last Ose card, and no one had seen her for over an old earthy year now. Mama Too had always said she was just fine and would join them any day now. Duck wasn't certain that was true, but kept quiet. Duck always did her best not to spoil Mama Tu's hopes. Duck felt her mind slip back to here and now. She knew they were speaking Pongel, but most of the conversation was flying by. Lucent's eye was speaking now and again, softly, calmly. Duck wondered if Last Osei was dangerous. He'd never seemed so before. She was grateful that she was small and in her robes, and that they seemed to have forgotten that she was even there. Right now, Last Osei was pacing around the area near the kitchen where the big dining table was. There was food on the table, but it had long gone cold. Lucent sigh was seated at the head of the table, toying with the congealed food on a plate in front of him. You could have been killed. Yes, I could have been killed. I was not, in fact, killed. He has gone too far this time. We need to file a complaint. I doubt that the complaint would be acted on, given that his brother is on the grievance committee. Then I need to challenge him. No one does that any more. Then what do you suggest? Just wait around as he tries again and again until he succeeds? I thought it was enough for him to win my seat in the circle. Apparently not. What does he want? I've given up everything I can. No one will even be seen talking with me, let alone stand with me against him by the faces. What does Selris want? He wants the visitors. I don't have the visitors. He thinks you do. Ose stopped and took in a deep breath. I don't. I don't have the visitors any more than anyone else in the service has them. I visit the ones here like everyone else. I talk with them like everyone else. They like you. They tolerate me because I bow to them. Yes, and because you speak to them as if they are more than just children. And thus they, in return, speak to you. So I'm not supposed to talk to the visitors. Seriously. You want to know why Selris thinks you are a threat. Celrus thinks you are a threat because you appear to have forged a bond with the visitors, and thus you have a better chance of finding the first. Osei sat down heavily at the dining room table. What are we going to do? We are going to reheat our lunch and eat slowly and with care. Then we're going to go talk to the visitors. The sooner we get them to tell us the name of the first, the sooner we can track the first down and hand whoever it is to Saurus. Duck felt a twinge of pity for Lastose. Mama, too, would say he was in a pickle. Lastose was worse off than he knew. The first was supposed to be the first visitor that had come through, and not even the visitors themselves knew who that was. They had all been pulled forward into different rooms, in different labs, and they found each other afterwards. Near as Duck knew from the grown-ups talking, the visitors at Burston had come through before those at the other labs. Which Burston visitor was actually the first person pulled forward was anyone's guess. It didn't matter how nice last Ose was to the visitors. They couldn't tell him what they didn't know. Duck thought of her skin suit tucked around her left knee, safe under her long robe, with her few possessions tucked into the folds. Visitors all had two colors on their suits, but Duck had all the colors, red, blue, green, and yellow. She knew that made Mama too worried that Duck might be the first. Duck didn't feel like a first. She felt like herself, not her old self, but her new here-and-now self. If she was the first, she hoped the service never found out. She didn't know what the prophecy said had to be done, but she was sure it would hurt. Ellen now. Ellen woke up once again in the back of a moving vehicle. She was trussed up tightly, with her arms in front of her in some sort of device that reached from her wrists to her elbows. Her legs were locked together, ankles to knees as well. This vehicle was motorized, as opposed to the wobbly cart pulled by a green-furred quadruped that she had traveled in with Buck. She could hear the motor. Elenin was flat on her back, and the ceiling above her seemed to be shifting oddly. She blinked her eyes a few times and realized that the ceiling was much closer than she thought. She was in some sort of bunk bed-style shelving. She turned her head slowly to the side and saw the two women visitors from earlier in the shelves on the other side of the truck, out cold. That meant Buck was likely to be in the shelf above her she's awake. Elenin looked where the voice was coming from and saw a guard sitting on the floor of the truck at the back. She tried to speak, but her mouth was too dry and she wound up making a croaking sound. Hang on. The guard got up and pulled a tube from the edge of her bed and held it to her lips. That stun shot dries you out pretty good. Ellenin sucked on the end of the tube and gratefully swallowed the cool liquid that came out. Thank you. Yeah, no worries. Ellenin felt her heart start to pound. She tried to move her arms and legs instinctively and felt herself start to panic at the restraints. She took a deep breath and closed her eyes, focusing on wiggling her toes and fingers and shifting her shoulders. Well, you're a bit more sane than those three are, aren't you? muttered the guard. They woke up and started hollering like they were being fried alive. Had to give them the blue tubes to knock them out again. These things really lock you down, don't they? and tried to keep her tone conversational. She felt like screaming. You probably want to get used to them. That skin suit of yours is damn creepy. You really kill all those people? Seem like a nice lady, but you never know. You probably want to just get me to the temple as fast as you can. They'll know what to do with me. Elenin kept her breath even and deep. Who knows what Puckett told them when she was out. She pushed her mind away from panic again. This was difficult, yes, but this was getting her to the temple. She refused to entertain the thought that she was in even worse trouble now than before. She was on the way to the temple, and her little girl and that was all that mattered. Visitor's Quarters, now. Magdalena idly counted the visitors as they slept through the night. 28, well, 30 actually. She needed to count Elanen and her little girl. Magdalena wondered how they had gotten in and where Elanen was. The child had told them so little, just that she was safe and warm, she had a cover, and that Elanen had gone out. Magdalena knew that Elenin would never have left her daughter alone unless she thought her safe. But something was amiss. She looked so thin, and it was all Magdalena could do to not scoop her up. She should have. One moment they were quietly talking about the color of the walls while signing their real conversation to each other, and the next moment last Osei had come running over and headed out of their prison room with the girl before they could stop him. Maggie stopped her mind from circling down the same spiral of thoughts again. The child was young, but she was smart. There was nothing that could be done right now in the middle of the night other than keep watch and wake up David when it was his turn to take over. The three of them still kept watch every night, even though Burston was long behind them. Once there had been five keeping watch. Then Fran had stayed behind when they left Burston. Then they'd been separated on that weird planet with the green sky and it had just been her and David and Paolo. They'd barely made it off the green planet. The three of them smuggled out on a cold storage freighter after seeing Ellen and the little one stow away on a cruise starship right under the nose of the service. Maggie smiled remembering the girl sliding into an open cargo hold on her belly just like an old earth sea otter her skin suit the color of the floor, while Ellen clung to the side of the baggage loader and dropped off out of sight once she cleared the hold door. Back then there had been a sense of adventure and almost fun as they'd raced around from planet to planet together, always one step ahead of the service. They were supposed to meet on Colsit in a week. They'd split up before when things had gotten dicey, but there was always a reunion plan in place time and a place for all of them to meet up again. But this time, when they'd gotten to the right time and the right place on Colset, there was no one there to meet. They stayed on Colset for three months, waiting and hoping. Maggie got her usual job in a bar. David played his usual role as a tourist. And Paolo spent his time researching as much as he could about where they were, when they were, and how they could avoid the service. David spent most of his time being racked with guilt over getting separated from Ellen and the little one. Usually, they never let the two of them off on their own, since Ellen could not phase, and while her daughter could phase, she quite often got lost once she was not in the here and now. David replayed their separation over and over in his head. He had walked away from them for just a second to check the departure schedule for their flight. And the next moment, sirens split the air and red lights flashed in the terminal. The outgoing flight area suddenly filled with figures in service robes, most of which were gold, the color of their military. David managed to catch Ellen's eye and saw her wink at him, then turned to scoop up the girl and slip behind a pillar. Wired partitions designed for crowd control slid up from the floor and cut David off from where he saw them hide. Maggie and Paolo made it to David's side, but there were too many service members around for them to move freely, and the partitions blocked their way. The three of them phased and then stood there, pressed against the wall out of the way, watching helplessly as the two other visitors snuck aboard the cargo ship. David felt the same familiar, residual guilt wash over him. Had he walked away on purpose? because some part of him knew what was coming. How could he have walked away from Ellen and Duck? He was the only way they could phase and escape danger, and he just strolled away. At the time, he had been upset at them having to escape on their own, but he had no idea they'd be separated so long. He thought they'd meet up at the fallback spot, and he'd have more time to figure out the future with Elenin. They could keep on talking about what lay ahead and... About their feelings for each other, about what to do about the fact that he was married to and still greatly loved Aya, his wife on Earth. Fran, then. Fran spent another month at the pit after she finished demolishing the lab. The first few weeks, she redid her search through phase levels a few times a day. Compulsive, her now long dead husband would have called her. Thorough was the word she'd used to answer him. At first, she'd slept at the bottom of the pit. After a few days, it got too muddy to sleep there, and she shifted to the lee side of a stone pile. The locals dropped off food in the open now. It turned out what she thought were rather large squirrels were actually the ones that had been leaving her the food. Their language was mostly made up of tail movements and chirps, so she was usually at a loss when trying to converse with them. She hoped they understood her gratitude for their care. Eventually, she figured out a few gestures, using her hand rather than a tail, that she thought meant thank you and hello and goodbye. It was clear to Fran quite quickly that, while the locals were small and cute, they were a sentient species with a fully developed culture. The trees around the pit were mostly hollowed out, with enough wood left to let the tree live while the locals made their homes inside. Branches intermingled between trees and formed walkways. There were communal areas for entertainment and what seemed to be religious services of some kind inside enormous hollow logs. While the locals seemed to avoid machinery as a whole, they did use hand tools, and she saw a section of trees that looked like they housed ovens and hearths. Some locals seemed to prefer sleeping in hollow trees, others at the very top of the branches, where they could see the endless sea of trees stretching out into the distance. Fran was too large for most of the rooms in the trees, so she slept curled up at the foot of one tree or another. Fran decided to stay out of phase for a while and savor the warmth of the sunlight and the sounds of the forest. She let her skin suit stay in its natural colors of green and blue. Her first full week staying in the here and now was idyllic. In the middle of the seventh night, however, she started feeling odd, and by the next morning her head was pounding, she was sick to her stomach, and she could barely stand. The locals fussed and chittered at her, flicking their tails until she lay down between the roots of a tree. They covered her nearly completely with leaves and then left, Fran was not sure if they thought she was dying or if this is how they handle illness. But she was too sick to do more than just keep breathing. She tried to keep her eyes open and watch the leaves of the tree shift against the sky. After a while, she passed out. She woke now and then, but most of her time was spent in a twilight state, hallucinating. Fran could feel herself being turned this way and that sometimes. And water being dripped into her mouth now and then. She tried to speak but gibberish came out and her whole body felt swollen and distorted. She didn't know how much time actually passed but after a few cycles of being conscious and unconscious she seemed to feel a bit more herself. Eventually she was able to open her eyes and understand that she was back in the here and now. She was still under the tree tucked between two roots but turned on her side she tried to make a sound but nothing came out but air. There was a rustling in the leaves in front of her and the fuzzy face of one of the locals came into view. Small clawed hands held the leaf above her and water dripped slowly onto the side of her face and ran into her mouth. She tried to signal thank you with her hand but couldn't manage more than a twitch of her fingers. Her eyes seemed to close of their own accord and she fell into a deep sleep. Eventually she woke up again In a few days, she seemed to be over the worst of it and was able to sit, then stand, then walk. She was even thinner than before and focused on eating enough to get her strength back. Fran fell into a routine of meals, stretching, running, and sleeping. She considered making a shelter large enough to sleep in, but for now she spent each night tucked into a shallow cave scooped out of one of the rock piles. The base of the trees reminded her too much of being ill. Fran realized that she needed to get to civilization proper in case she got sick again. She wondered what her life would hold now that she was free of the prison lab and had made sure her son was safe in the past. Back home on Earth, she had loved to garden, to spend time with her friends, to travel with her family. She remembered feeling like there was never enough time. Now she felt like there was too much of it, rolling out in front of her, endless and gray. She woke up early one morning to the sound of chittering, opening her eyes to see several of the locals chirping at her and pointing their tails up to the sky. She heard a droning sound and realized there was something flying overhead. Fran jumped up and sprinted to the cover of the trees, shifting her skin suit to match the color of the ground as she ran. She climbed the first tree she got to and peered up into the sky through the leaf cover. The locals perched around her, silent, their tails jittering. The droning sound grew louder. A small airship came into view and landed with a bit of a bump in a clear space among the stone piles. Two beings in blue robes came out and looked around, then stood looking into the pit. Fran wondered if she should shout out to them. The silence of the locals made her think twice. A third being in a green robe came out of the ship and motioned towards someone still on the ship. Down the ramp came a woman in a red and green skin suit. Her hands were locked in front of her in some sort of metallic frame, and her skin suit covered her entirely, including her head. Fran felt herself go tense at the sight of the visitor and restraints. Whoever these people were, They were not her friends. Fran turned to look at the locals and bowed her head. The one closest to her bowed its head back. Fran phased up a level, then, sight unseen, slipped down the tree and across to the ship. It felt strange to be in phase after so long in the here and now. The robed figures and the visitor were at the edge of the pit looking down, and Fran could see the green-robed man's mouth moving as he spoke. She tried to read his lips, a skill she had honed back at the lab, but he was not speaking any language that she knew. She went up the ramp, slipping inside the ship and keeping as much distance between herself and the robed figures inside as she could. The ship was small, with only four rooms, and there were at least a half a dozen more robed figures milling about. There was not a lot of room to maneuver, and Fran found a small room and tucked herself behind a table in a corner. As long as she stayed in phase, silent and in the corner, the odds were that she wouldn't be noticed. She heard the others come back onto the ship, then realized suddenly that she didn't know if she could ride on a ship while in phase. What if she stayed where she was, and the ship just flew off through her? It was too late to do anything other than close her eyes and brace herself. As she heard the engines start up and the walls start to vibrate, the ship rose quickly, ran with it. Outside the ship, the locals ran down out of the trees and stood around watching the ship lift off. The monster was leaving. Their work as witnesses was over. A few of them went over to where the monster had lain ill for so long and started bundling up the leaves, bringing them over to the pit where the lab had once stood and throwing them in to mix with the mud. The leaves smelled like the monster, and the monster only lived now in stories. On the ship, Fran opened one eye as she felt the floor tilt at liftoff and saw the green robe and the red-green visitor had come into the room. The green robe undid the visitor's restraints and left. Fran stayed in phase and watched as the woman let her skin suit slide down off her head and rubbed her wrists. Fran did not recognize her. She thought about revealing herself to the visitor but decided against it. Her days of rescuing people were over. It was time to find someplace quiet and learn how to survive in this new world. The fact that this new world seemed to restrain visitors did not bode well. They flew for about an hour, then landed at what looked like a small town. Still in phase, Fran slipped off the ship and moved quickly through the tiny spaceport. She didn't recognize any of the languages on the signs. Whatever the growlers had used for writing was completely different. For the first time in a long while, she thought of Elenin and her daughter, Magdalena and Paolo and David, her tribe. She hoped they had gotten to safety and built new lives for themselves. It was time for her to do the same. Celrus, now. Last Celrus stood on a raised dais in the tailor shop, his arms spread wide. Wildly colored fabric with a pattern loosely based on feathers was draped over his arms and the tailor was busy pinning the cloth into huge sleeves. Selrus looked at himself in the full-length mirror before him. Few members of his race had such dignified features or such impressively wide shoulders. Celrus understood the advantages of his good looks, though they mattered little in the endless mix of races and cultures that made up the service. Make sure that they're long enough to sweep the floor this time, muttered Selrus as he shifted his weight a bit and raised his chin. Yes, my lord, replied the tailor. He shifted a few pins to allow for more fabric length to the sleeves. Odds were that they'd be brought back in a week to be shortened, but this customer paid well. Celrus liked being called my lord. It was much better than being called last Celrus. Last was a title so common he might as well not have one at all. He was here getting his festival coat made for the new year much earlier than usual, in the hopes that his newest plan would bear fruit. It was time he had a new title more suited to his skills and talents, consort to the first, for example. Now that sounded perfect, and would fit well with his new robes when he was introduced at the new year parties. Lasselris was part of a group in the service that took the prophecy of the first visitor down a unique interpretive road. The prophecy itself was remarkably simple. Five short phrases that were carved high into one of the arches inside the dome that loomed over the temple's main entry hall. When power fades, the first will show. The consort the bridge, then into now and power will renew. The service had been embedded into the overarching political and social structure of the galaxy for millennia. Most of their power came from tradition and the ease that they brought to -to day-to-day logistics on just about every planet. Originally a mercenary organization, they had grown and prospered because of a set of rules they adhered to stringently. They never interfered with politics outside the service. They only took unwanted children, orphans, or volunteers to fill their ranks, and they offered the use of their technology at very reasonable prices. Most of their tech was powered by a seemingly endless supply of white, glowing orbs that expanded and contracted depending upon the space made available for them. Each orb lasted for hundreds of years, allowing machinery to last for generations. Once an orb finally ran out of power, it could be returned to the service and get recharged for a nominal fee. How the orbs were recharged was a mystery to most of the galaxy. Once recharged, the orbs lasted for hundreds more years. The prophecy was directly related to the power of the orbs. There was an enormous reservoir of power beneath the temple itself that was used to recharge the orbs, known as the Source. Every 50,000 years or so, the power within the source itself would start to run low. The service had been in existence for over 200,000 years. In that time, the service's records showed that the templed source had been recharged three times. The problem the service now had was, while there were endless writings and holos about the source being recharged, no one alive knew exactly how that was done. The reams of text assumed some basic knowledge that no one alive in the service seemed to have 20 cycles ago the service had despaired some of the prophecy was a mystery and they were running out of time to solve it when power fades was clear the source was definitely fading the first will show baffled everyone the first what person how could they find a first person out of all the people in the galaxy What made someone first? The consort the bridge was generally interpreted as the consort of the first would be shown the way to repower the source, though how that would be done was a bit fuzzy. Then into now was a complete mystery and power will renew was obvious. When power fades, the first will show the consort the bridge, then into now and power will renew. Once the time travelers showed up, however, the service took heart. The visitors' role became clear. Then into now was clearly in the prophecy, and the visitors had come from the past into the present. Then into now. That left the second line of the prophecy. The first will show, as the only real part of the mystery left. Debate started. The service now knew that the visitors were a part of the prophecy, but who knew what defined a first? It was eventually decided via a service-wide vote that the term first could be taken literally. The first was simply the first visitor that had been brought from the past to the present. That settled that. The service was filled with theories of what or who the consort was, but it was generally agreed that it was a member of the service based on a drawing of the consort in the records that showed a quadruped wearing service robes. Selris knew deep in his bones that he was destined to be the consort, and he believed, along with a select group of other lasts, that the role of the consort was physical rather than symbolic. As he told his friends back when they first studied the issue of renewing the source, they screw! The first in the consort, they have sex! and that recharges the source. Since then he had studied everything he could find about the actual recharging process. Like others who shared his belief, he based most of his theory on a grainy hollow of the initial first and their consort, standing in the cavern under the temple that housed the source. The two of them were holding hands, and while it was impossible to make out the finer details of their faces, it was clear they were comfortable with each other, "'laughing and pointing to the source and then hugging. "'There were myriad interpretations "'of the words show and bridge in the prophecy, "'but for Celrus there was just one. "'All he had to do was be the first to find the first. Elenin, now. "'The back wall of the truck rolled up with a clatter "'and the guard jumped down quickly, "'pulled out a ramp hidden in the floor of the truck, and motioned to someone out of sight. These guys have been traveling for hours, and they probably need the facilities. Elenin kept her eyes closed. She had pretended to be asleep for the last hour, listening to the other three visitors after they woke up and started yelling, then pleading, then threatening. Wherever the three of them had come through, their accents were the same, and their standard was excellent. Elenin didn't know half of the words they used. She heard footsteps come into the truck and then Buck started cursing. There was a soft hiss and then silence as the footsteps left the truck. Ellen and heard the footsteps return and felt herself lifted slightly, then hauled off the shelf by her shoulders and legs. She opened her eyes and squinted up into a sunny sky as two purple-robed lasts brought her out of the truck. They loaded her onto what looked pretty close to an old earth dolly if she took away the wheels and it hovered a few centimeters above the ground. Are you going to stand, or should we strap you up? asked a woman's voice by her ear. She turned her head to see another purple robed last. They were at the temple. I can stand. Ellen and put her weight onto her feet and stood. "'as the last snapped a belt shut around her "'to keep her attached to the dolly. "'The guard from the truck gave her a half-salute. "'Take care of yourself, ma'am!' "'He turned and headed back to the truck, "'and she could hear Bussett and Eulish "'yelling at the guards. "'Thank you!' "'Ellen managed to blurt out before she was taken away. "'Buck was floating on his own dolly a bit ahead of her, "'pushed along by another purple-robed last. She could see him slumped down as if unconscious. They were outside the main doors of the temple, the same ones that she had exited over a month ago. They rolled up on one of the side ramps and through the enormous, ornately carved doors. Eleanor knew there were public bathrooms down the hallways on both sides of the doors, as well as on the other side of the huge front entryway. The last was behind her, and she tried to make her voice as pleasant as possible. Would it be possible for me to use the facilities? Yes. The last wheeled her down the hall to the right and into a large room with cubicles. She pulled the key out from under her robe and locked the door. I'm going to undo the belt and your restraints. Do you see the gold border on my robe? That means I am allowed to fight and kill on behalf of the Order. I won't kill you if you try anything but I will definitely hurt you. Do you understand? Eleanor nodded. She had no issue with biding her time until the right moment came to escape. The last undid the belt keeping her on the dolly and pointed a small remote at her arms and then her legs. The restraints stayed on, but they clicked apart so that her arms and legs could now move independently. She rolled her shoulders in relief. Elinan forced a smile at the last and went into the first cubicle, her legs swinging clumsily. My name is Elinan. What is yours? I am last, I I notice that your robe is purple. What branch of the service does purple represent? Purple is security. Gold is the military. Red is education. Green is diplomacy. Orange is health, blue is science. The particular purple of my robe means that I deal with prisoners. So I am considered a prisoner. You are a visitor. You are not a prisoner. However, you are also accused of being a criminal. We are using caution. Eleanor used the sonics in the cubicle to clean her hands and then clumped her way out into the bathroom proper. Last, Isok watched her with caution. Why is your skin suit black? Some of us in Burston learned how to make our skin suits black so that we could remain unseen in the dark hallways. We made it a habit as it kept us safer. What color is your skin suit normally? Ellenin looked at Last, Isoc with a measured gaze. For all her smiles and quiet questions, Ellenin was very aware that she was indeed a prisoner. The real question was, what would the color of her skin suit reveal to last ISOC, and would she get information in return that was equally useful? I would be considered military with a border of diplomacy if I was a last. You cannot phase. No. Diplomacy would never be a border. The borders show the shadow skills. The green shadow skill is more like an olive green, and it means that one can lie on behalf of the order. How are skills assigned? Talent? Talents lead to shadow skills. Training and need determine main skills. Your border is gold, so you have a talent for fighting? I have a talent for killing. Duck, now. Duck stayed close to Last Osei and Lucent Sai in the midst of the busy outdoor market. She usually loved the chaos of open air markets with the multitude of foods and products for sale, but since discovering that the Last and the Lucent were in danger, she had been much more cautious. The three of them had left the temple early that morning in search of more supplies for their emergency kits. Duck thought of them as escape kits, like she had made in Burston with her family. Everything needed to live for as long as possible that took up as little room as possible. She noticed that there were supplies for three kits being gathered, and one of the kits had smaller items in it. A smaller blanket, smaller boots dangling from laces threaded through the pack's loop. Whatever the danger they were in, they were taking someone else with them when they went. She hoped it was her small self. Osei kept a close eye on Duck. He was sure that the visitor David had recognized her the other day, the last mulled over where the two of them may have met. David, as well as two of the other visitors, had spent almost a year out in the world after they left Burston. Perhaps they had met Duck briefly on their travels. A part of Osei could accept that as an explanation, but most of him did not. The joy, though only shown for a moment, had been intense and quite real. The Punjin in him knew that the relationship between the two of them was deep and based in love. Last, Osei turned over the thought in his mind that perhaps Duck had traveled with David and the other visitors during their year free. Perhaps they met her and adopted her into their circle, keeping a small child safe in a large galaxy. It was quite possible. It still did not fit though. Sai caught Osei's eye, noticing his distraction and raised an eyebrow. Osei glanced back at Duck and Sai gave a slow nod. He agreed that there was more to Duck than met the eye. Sai went even further with his ideas of Duck's origins. Sai suspected that Duck had been in Burston, a prisoner along with the visitors. She knew several sayings that were distinctly visitor phrases Ways of ordering words and standard that showed a familiarity with the visitor's thought processes. Sai had heard her mutter safe and warm to herself several times when she thought she was not being noticed or heard. That was a burst in visitor phrase, if ever there was one. They walked past a noodle shop, the smell of food wafting out of the door. Duck took a deep breath in, and Sai asked her, Are you hungry? would you like some noodles? Duck stopped and looked at the bright pictures of the different offerings on the window. I don't know. I've never had noodles. Osei went into the shop with Sai propelling Duck in front of him. She looked around at all the tables full of patrons noisily slurping huge bowls of noodles and broth. They're slurping, whispered Duck to Sai giggling. Yes, Sai nodded. It's only proper to slurp your noodles loudly. Duck looked delighted as Osei pointed them to an empty table near the back. You do grab a table and I'll get us some dinner. Duck quickly went to the table, darting between the seated diners. Sai saw her pause before she sat down and wondered again what her origins were. You okay there, Duck? He asked when he caught up and sat across from her at the table. Yes, she said, her face pensive. I think my auntie would really like this place. Sai spoke quietly, doing his best not to jar the mood. Does she like noodles? I don't think she ever had them. Maybe we can bring her some. Duck looked up at Sai. Her face was calm and her voice grew soft. We can't bring her anything, She's the one who... Her voice broke and she swallowed hard. The one who what? The one who stayed behind. Ose came up with a tray filled with bowls nearly overflowing. Here we go. We have all sorts since I don't know what you like, Duck. Ose started unloading bowls onto the table. And after a moment, Duck started helping him. Sai started explaining the finer points of slurping, and in a few minutes they were all eating and laughing. After they finished most of the noodles, they headed back out into the market. Sai stopped by a stand selling brightly colored blocks of jiggling gel. Do you think the visitors would enjoy some Blars? I have no idea, replied Osei. Let's bring them some and see. Sai pointed at a few different colors and handed some coins to the merchant, who bagged up the blocks in a clear square container with a handle. Duck thought that the blocks looked pretty all stacked together, like an old earth stained glass window. Sai saw her looking at the blars. Do you like blars? He asked Duck in his quiet voice. I don't know, replied Duck. I like the colors. Do you think the visitors would like it? Last Ose said you spoke with them a bit yesterday. I don't know. I think they like very simple things like oral roots and the toasted crunchy things that are blue. Duck tried very hard not to continue listing all the foods they had learned to love while they were on the loose, as Mama too had called it. It was difficult because some of the food was delicious in the here and now, but most of it was very strange and hard to eat. The brief glimpse of their food she had seen yesterday revealed nothing that was very tasty. She wondered if she could smuggle some food into her family from the cafeteria. Osei smiled and said gently, Well then, we shall pick up some of that as well. He had been trying diligently to moderate the tone and volume of his voice ever since his outburst last night. The life of an offered was not the easiest path, and he did not need to make it any harder. They spent another few minutes picking up the oral roots and crunchy blue scurf seeds and then headed back home. When they got back to the temple, there was a van in front with a purple line painted on it and two women were being taken out. The women were in restraints and yelling loudly. They wore something that looked like skin suits, but Duck wasn't sure because they only had one color each and the texture was odd. She saw Osei and Sai look at each other, then head up the steps quickly, and she increased her pace to keep up. The two men strode through the main entry hall and Duck scrambled behind them, following as they wove their way through the corridors until they reached the door to the visitors' area. Duck, do you think you can remember which visitors you spoke with yesterday? Asked last Osei. Yes, replied Duck, keeping very still. Please find them and see if you can talk with them further. I'd like you to make friends with them, all right? Yes. Last Osei opened the door and the three of them went in. Duck was not sure if Lucent sigh was actually allowed in this room, but ever since he'd gotten home, last Osei had refused to leave his side. The two men paused and then walked over to the kitchen area. The visitors were scattered around the room. Duck looked around for Auntie Maggie and Uncle Paolo and saw them immediately over by the tables in the center of the room. She walked over to them quickly and saw with delight that Uncle David was standing there with them. They all looked so strange in their tunic and pants. She put her hood down and beamed at them, and Auntie Maggie made a muffled sound and kneeled in front of her. "'I'm an idiot! I'm an idiot! Are you all right? Are you all right?' "'Auntie Maggie, no, 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 you blow my cover!' "'Honey, it's okay,' Magdalena looked like she was going to cry. "'It's okay if we blow your cover. "'You're a big girl, but without your mama to watch over you, "'it's very dangerous out there in the temple. "'Maybe it's better if you stay in here with us.' "'Duck looked at Maggie and felt herself start to tear up. "'Mama, too, has been gone a long time. "'Yes, she has.' and you need to be here with us, safe and warm. Maggie glanced up at the sound of the large room's only door opening again. Three people were being brought in, wearing single-colored skin suits, something that Maggie had never seen before. The visitors were unconscious and strapped to gliding dollies steered by purple-robed lasts. Maggie looked at the visitors carefully. Their skin suits were only one color, And seemed somehow wrong. Duck looked at the unconscious visitors and said to Maggie, Oh, I saw them outside too. Their skin suits are wrong. Don't think those are skin suits, Auntie Maggie. Maggie took her hand and moved her towards the side of the room, out of the path of the lasts and their charges. What do you mean, honey? I can see that their suits are just one color. They are baggy. The skin suits are really baggy, and they're not the right colors. That's not the right green on that man. I see. Do you think that they're maybe from a different lab that made different skin suits, ones that we don't know? Maggie was aware that the child might be feeling uneasy around so many strangers, even if they were visitors. Seeing these ones with just one color on their suits being wheeled by unconscious had to be shaking her up a bit. Duck looked uncertain. That might be for sure. I don't know, but I don't like them. Maggie knelt down and folded her into a hug. It's okay, little bug. We'll stay over here, and they can go over there, and we'll take it slow and steady. Duck nodded. Slow and steady. When the new visitors came in, Sai turned from where he was standing in the kitchen with Osei and went behind a partition. It was best to err on the side of discretion until all the tension with Selris flew over. Ose walked over to talk quietly with the lasts. Across the room, David slipped behind a partition and phased. He made his way silently over to stand near Ose, watching the lasts' face and doing his best to lip-read what was said. Good morning, last Turl, said Ose. Last Kester, last Silrus." Good morning, Last Ose. We have found more visitors, replied Last Turl. I see. Their skin suits are quite unique, aren't they? Why are they unconscious? Did they harm anyone when collected? They came willingly, but did not understand that they would be restrained. Eventually, their cooperation ceased, and we had to subdue them, answered Kester. Do we know their names and source labs? Not their full names. The male is Buck. The females are Busset in the red and Eulish in the blue. They say their source lab is Riss, said Turl. Last Ose looked at the other lasts. That is interesting. I was under the impression that we had a full list of the visitors from Riss, and I don't remember the names of these on that list. Neither do we, agreed Turl. Perhaps a review of all the names might be in order, as well as double-checking what visitors came through which labs, offered Kester. Indeed, after all this time, it would be quite a shock to learn. We did not have an accurate count of the visitors, said Osei. Silrus motioned to Kester, who took a dolly in each hand and rolled the still unconscious visitors over to the sleeping area. Silrus grabbed the third dolly with its sleeping occupant and followed. David stayed near Osei, determined to learn more about the new visitors. Turl leaned in towards Osei and said quietly, There is another one, a female. She has a very odd skin suit. It's completely black. The unconscious ones say that she murdered a dozen visitors at risk before she was taken down. I've not heard anything even remotely like that from our sources, replied Osei. I think it may be a personal grudge. Perhaps these three made it up. The woman does have a bomb bracelet on, so if it's just a grudge, it's a deep one. Do we have a name for the woman? No, not yet. Where is she? Last Isoc has her. Do you think we can convince Last Isoc to bring her here, rather than the cells? Do you think it's safe? I think here is safer than anywhere else. Last Turrell nodded his head and turned towards the exit. David had only understood some of what was said between the two of them, but he did catch that there was another visitor with a black skin suit. That meant someone from Burston. Only a dozen Burston women could go black, and even fewer could hold black for any length of time. He toyed with the idea of slipping out of their little prison and finding the other visitor, but he knew it would result in tighter restrictions. The service would panic if they knew how little actual control they had over the whereabouts of the visitors. Out of the 28 visitors in the temple, six of them could phase. More importantly, two of them could group others into phase. Magdalena all by herself could easily group with all 28 people and go into phase, bringing the whole group with her. The entire room full of visitors could disappear in less than a second. She could also go into phase, group with one visitor, and then that visitor would be able to pull others into the group as long as Magdalena stayed a part of it. The service had absolutely no control over the visitors. They could phase in an instant and easily slip out of the door while it was open. The visitors knew, however, that as soon as they did that, they would need to stay hidden forever. It was not a reusable tactic and odds were that anyone left behind would be kept unconscious and unable to phase until the service had found their first. So for now, the visitors stayed out of phase during the day unless it was an emergency. David knew that curiosity was not an emergency, and while their team of 28 visitors was getting more skilled, they still had a long way to go before they'd be able to escape the service and stay free. Ever since they had been caught, David had been running drills at night once the overhead lights went out. He taught those who came through in labs other than Burston how to shift their skin suits to black and tested everyone to see either how high they could phase on their own or how high they could be pulled into phase by someone else. David himself was not able to group others into phase, but he could pull one other person into phase as long as he kept physical skin-to-skin contact with them. Most people that could phase but not group could do this simple linking, and in the dark, echoing room every night, they practiced phasing, linking, and grouping. Magdalena taught everyone the hand signs from Burston, and they expanded the language even more. Paolo called their little group the defense team. Like Magdalena, he thought the best way to make a new life in the here and now was to get all the visitors in one place, free them, and then hide them from the service forever. Ellen now. Last Isaac rolled Ellen down a hall and up a ramp, deeper into the temple proper. Elenin kept an eye out for Offord, noticing a few in their gray robes, but dismissing them as all too tall to be her little girl. Where are you taking me? she asked. You are to see last Selris. Is he in charge of the prisoners? He is in charge of the visitors here at the temple. Are there a lot of visitors here? I am noticing that you are quite adept at asking sensitive questions in an apparently harmless way. You would make a good diplomat. Thank you. I am worried for my friends. We became very close at the labs, and I'm concerned for their well-being. My questions are all related to finding them and making sure they're all right. Did you murder the other visitors in defense of your friends? I did not murder any other visitors. I did kill some growlers, but that was back at Burston. Why would your fellow visitors accuse you of murder then? I do not know. I don't know why they put this bomb bracelet on me either. Ellen had been keeping her mind one step ahead of the conversation, in an effort to balance the info she was giving with what she was receiving, but the effort suddenly seemed too much and she felt tears well up in her eyes. She struggled for control as they sped down yet another corridor. Are you all right? You seem distraught. I am imprisoned, restrained. I don't know if my friends are alive or dead. I'm on a strange planet in a strange time, and I'm accused of things that I did not do. I think distraught is a reasonable reaction. Ellen and let her tears spill out. And I have a bomb on my arm that no one seems in the least bit worried about but me. Last, Isaac stopped and walked around to stand in front of her. We are not able to remove the bomb bracelet. We cannot find the key. We have placed a jammer in your restraints to prevent it from blowing up until we find the key. Buck has the key. He showed it to me. The visitor in green. It was not on his person when he was taken in. Elenin felt panic creeping into the corners of her mind and breathed deeply, trying to suck in enough air to clear her head. He said that it was the only key and the only way to get this bracelet off my wrist. "'We will find it. The keys are quite indestructible. "'They can be lost, but not destroyed. "'What is lost can be found.' Elenin looked at isaac and battled for calm. isaac watched her closely as Elenin dampened down her panic and evened out her breath. "'It is a shame you are a visitor. "'You'd make a good last.' Chapter 4 Pamela here. This section is Q&A for Duck chapter four. Thank you everyone for listening to the podcast. I really appreciate it. If you've got questions, please feel free to send them in via email at duckhereandnow at gmail.com or search for the group DuckDuckGoose on Facebook. Also, I've started a Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Pamela zero, and you can message me Directly there as well. Okay, so this week I'm going to talk about the Lucents. A few of you have asked about them, and I touched on them a bit in the book, but they are a huge subject, so I thought I'd go into it a little bit here. Can't talk about the lucents without discussing the relationship to the symbiote that all the punj have. There are three main concepts when it comes to the symbiote, which is also called the pattern. So this pattern has been impacting the punj for generations and it's breeding them selectively to enhance the traits that allow the symbiote a better chance to survive. The symbiote can impact the host in really profound ways. It can impact their blood flow. It can release hormones. It can regulate their heart rate, their blood pressure. It's pretty intense. The symbiote creates these threads from the host's own body that weave through the host. The threads coat the underside of their skin, Uh, it's in their organs, it lives in their muscles, runs through their blood vessels. The symbiote is in their host's brain. The most heavily used pathway, however, is the nervous system. And the physical representation of the symbiote is a pattern that sometimes shows on the host's skin, like glowing lines. The host can bring the pattern glow up, and the pattern itself can glow in response to an external stimulus. So puns are born with a pattern already set, and it slowly spreads through their bodies as they mature. And the pattern they're born with is a combination of their parents' patterns, and each pattern is unique. The pattern isn't combined through actual physical sexual intercourse of the parents. It's combined by threading. The parents put a bit of their symbiote into each other, and that's what creates the combination in the child before it's born, and then it's born with the pattern that's unique. So when two hosts partner up, their patterns adopt a bit of their partner's pattern And that makes the patterns themselves shift and change, even in the adults. The patterns are usually just one color, and while the shape of a host pattern might change, the color never does. So, the symbiote. It's one large being split up between all the hosts. Uh, It has a hive mind, it can communicate with itself in different hosts, and it does have an overall plan that spans thousands of years. It's not evil or mean or malignant, it doesn't seek domination of races, I mean, other than the punj, though it's able to live in a wide variety of life forms, it only has adopted the punj as its host, mostly. Though it, it could go into other beings, it just doesn't. Basically, it wants to live in its host and move steadily towards its end goal. So, the lucents. I'm in the middle of the second book, and there's a lot more of the lucents in that one. But for now, let me tell you a little bit about the lucent organization. Lucents are dedicated to the study and care of the pattern and how it relates to its host. Being a lucent isn't a career choice. If you want to become a lucent, you have to be born With a certain sensitivity to your own pattern, and that's usually demonstrated by a huge amount of fussiness when an infant and a really sharp sense of intuition. Children that show the lucent gift, for lack of a better term, are left with their parents to grow up, but they go through the lucent educational system rather than normal schools, and after their pattern fully matures, they move into one of many lucent sanctuaries that are scattered around Punjar. They start their studies by covering three main areas, the physiology of the symbiote, the history of the genetic changes to the Punj and the impact the symbiote has on its host. And then after a three or four years studying, lucents are encouraged to pick an area to specialize in. And there are hundreds of specific paths of study. Lucents can research the communication methods of the symbiote, they can go into the hive mind, they can learn about the physical or emotional impact the symbiote has on its host, they can figure out how patterns blend, the list is is almost endless. But once their path of study is set, lucents can spend decades meandering through information and doing experiments. And there's no rule that says a lucent has to stay In one area of study, some lucents shift what they're studying regularly. So on top of their studies, lucents are also part of a network of healers and ambassadors and cultural coaches. They provide care and compassion to the Punj populace. A lucent is as close to a priest as the Punj culture comes. Religious beliefs on Punjar are vestigial. There's leftover religious sayings and curses, but the symbiote steered the populace away from the fervor required for true faith. And at this point in Punj culture, religion is pretty much non existence. Apparently, the long term goals of the symbiote require science based logic and choices rather than faith based. So, that's a bit about the Lucents. They're just on Punjar, though they travel around the galaxy at times to support punj that are away from home, but that's pretty rare. Sai is one of the few lucents that does not live at a sanctuary, and we'll learn a little bit more about him as the book goes on. I hope that clarifies a bit about the lucents. Please send me more questions about them if that wasn't enough to satisfy, but not give everything, because I want you to listen to the rest of the book. It's got some stuff in it that I want you to hear. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this podcast. If you have questions, please feel free to send them in via email at duckhereandnow at gmail.com or search for the group Duck, Duck Goose on Facebook. I've also started a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash PamelaZero, and you can message me there directly as well. I'll talk to you next week. Stay well, everyone.